Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute, and I'm so happy to welcome you all today to our February Conservative Women's Network. I also want to give a special thanks to Bridget Wagner and the Heritage Foundation, who have been partners with us in this lunch since 1999. Now it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Catherine Gorka, who will discuss the threat posed by ISIS to America. Catherine's the president of the Council on Global Security, a think tank that develops and builds support for policies that promote freedom of belief and defeat extremist ideologies. Her company, Threat Knowledge Group, provides counterterrorism training and expertise to the FBI, special operations, local law enforcement, and military. A recognized expert in the field of democratic transition in post-dictatorial nations, Catherine spent nearly two decades working in Central Europe and she was the regional head of the USAID-funded Democracy Network Program run by the National Forum Foundation. From 2009 to 2014, she served as executive director of the Westminster Institute based in McLean, Virginia, and she co-edited the volume Fighting the Ideological, Ideological War, Winning Strategies from Communism to Islamism, and she appears frequently in the media. Most recently, she co-authored the report ISIS, the Domestic Threat. Catherine is a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, received a master's degree in international political economy from the London School of Economics. She's the mother of two children, 17 and 18, and we are so delighted to have you with us today. Please join me in welcoming Catherine Gorka. Well, it's lovely to be here. Um, I have to say, I thought this was going to be a really casual lunch and that we'd all be sitting around a table. So that's what I was imagining, and that was kind of the, the talk that I had prepared. So I'm going to try to step it up a little bit since I'm at a podium. Um, two things that I want you to come away with, two things that I'm going to try to uh, accomplish today. One is to help you understand the nature of the threat a little bit better, um, and that should make you a little bit more afraid than you are right now. Uh, but then I want to talk about why a conservative response is the only one that's going to protect us. And so I hope that will make you feel encouraged and more committed to your own conservatism uh, and hopeful, ultimately. So I hope you don't walk out of here feeling really despondent. Um, so let's talk first. Let me talk first about the nature of the threat. When... Jokar Tsarnaev was captured by the police, the younger of the two Boston bombers. Uh, the police got, you know, he was arrested finally, and the older brother was killed, as you know, and the police got hold of his computer. And what they found there were 2,000 pages of jihadist literature. Uh, all the greatest hits of jihadist literature uh, were there, along with various videos and um, social media posts and things. Now, it's possible that the brothers would have gone in the radical direction on their own, right? They had a, the background of being Chechen, so they had this conflict uh, in their back, in their in their past. Um, you. You could argue that they had difficult circumstances growing up because they were not American living in the United States, although you know, I think that they were really well looked after. They were in a private school. They seemed to have been given every opportunity. I don't think that they would have taken the steps they had without the jihadist literature. This was the critical piece. Even the other piece of this, which were the instructions on how to build the pressure bomb, uh, which they found in Dabiq, ISIS's magazine, they still likely would not have taken the steps that they did and designed the bomb and carried out the attack. What was so important about these 2,000 pages of jihadist literature? What's common to the Tsarnaev brothers and to virtually every person that has carried out what in their mind is a jihadist attack or an attack in defense of Islam, they all believe that they are being good Muslims. 
I'm not going to pass judgment on that one. I'm just going to, what I'd like to do is explain to you uh, where that belief comes from and a little bit of the sort of intellectual heritage of that belief. And this is what you can find in the 2,000 pages. Um, and this is the critical piece that we're really missing today. So when you hear people talk about why are we facing this threat, why are we facing ISIS today, why were we facing al-Qaeda 10 years ago, uh, why are we still going to be facing al-Qaeda, in fact, uh, today and going forward, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on U.S. policy in the region, a lot of emphasis on U.S. going in, having troops stationed in Saudi Arabia. Uh, this was, of course, one of the things cited by bin Laden. Uh, you know, and if we just can, can get out of the Middle East, this will go away. Or there's the, the position taken by this administration, which says it's really down to um, material social circumstances, right? bad economic conditions, they don't have jobs, undereducation, lack of opportunity, feeling disenfranchised by their government. If we can just address these social issues, it will go away. This is a complete misreading of the threat. And if we understand it in these narrow, short-term terms, we will never defeat it. So the problem goes back all the way to the beginning. I mean, we've heard enough, I think you all know this, um, the quotes that they take from the Quran, they are there, right? Smite them on their neck, kill the infidel, kill the non-believer, um, those types of quotes, they, they are there, we know that. But it's what happens afterwards, it's what happens after Muhammad dies that really creates the problem for us today. And this is the thread. Um, I'm going to try to cover 1,400 years of intellectual history in about eight minutes. Um, so I'm just going to give you the, the highlights. But it's, it's an important thread, and it's, it's not that hard to understand. And I hope that by unpacking it just a little bit, um, for those of you who do work in the national security field or who want to pursue this more, you'll feel less intimidated to and you know dive in and, and try to understand this a little bit. Um, so what happens after Muhammad dies? You know, when he is alive, it's very easy to know who is the ultimate arbiter of right and wrong of the law, right? It's Muhammad. But what happens when he dies? Um, and then, you know, this raises all those kinds of questions. Well, what is the foundation of the law in Islam? Is it the Quran? And then if it's the Quran, what happens when we come up with circumstances that didn't take place during the time of Muhammad? How do we then know? And very importantly, and this is one of the pivotal questions, was the Quran written by human beings in a given time and place, which means that maybe things in it were written for that specific time and place, and we can change those things a little bit, or adapt those things, or interpret them differently as circumstances change. Or is the Quran uncreated? Meaning, has it always existed? And this is the belief. So now there was a great debate that took place for a few centuries over this question. And it's a very, very important question. And actually, it, it continues to this day to be an important question. And it's one of the very important avenues of debate uh, for reformists and for trying to find ways for Islam to coexist with, with other religions. But the important thing is, there was a scholar uh, named Ibn Hanbal, a, a jurist, who ultimately took the position the Quran was uncreated, nothing in it can be changed, it has coexisted with God through all time, and that is our source of law. That and the sayings and the um, activities of Muhammad, and he gathered those in a book, and those are the things that we look to for the law. So now, let's take this piece. Now, Ibn Hanbal created only one of four schools of juris jurisprudence. So this is important. So we're starting with Muhammad. Then we have, you can sort of say there's four uh, kind of lines coming down from that. This represents one, okay? So not all Muslims hold to this line, but this is the thread that we're going to follow. Ibn Hanbal, 
who says, the source of the law is the Quran. It's uncreated. We have to take it literally. It cannot be changed. Okay? Now follow this thread down about 400 years later. What's happening in the world? So for the first 600 years that Islam exists, it's, it's pretty much in the ascendant, right? It's expanding quickly. It's growing. It becomes this enormous empire. There are skirmishes, without a doubt, here and there, but it's largely ascendant and unchallenged. Until the 1200s, what happens then? Genghis Khan pulls together the, the Turkic and Mongol tribes into this mighty fighting force, and they start coming west, right? They first come up into Russia, into Europe, but then, and they had largely originally left the Islamic world alone. But then they got to the point around 1255 where they said, no, we're going after Islam. We're not only going to go after it, but we're going to destroy it. And they did a very good job. They, at that time, Baghdad was the seat of the Islamic Caliphate. It was a glorious city. It had incredible um, institutions. It had libraries. It had mosques and hospitals, and it had been a very great seat of, of learning and inquiry and study. And the Mongols managed to defeat it in two weeks. And it's estimated that as many as a million people were killed. Uh, the river apparently ran red with blood. The libraries were burned. The books were destroyed. So Islam suddenly is up against this very new situation. Um, it's, it's being conquered. Now, the Mongols have said, we are Muslim, right? They've, they've converted so that they can rule the Muslim people, but it's not, they're not really Muslim. They've kind of adopted it uh, for expedience sake. So as they move from Baghdad, they move a little bit uh, further west and they come into Syria. Now there's a very brilliant, really brilliant young scholar named Ibn Taymiyyah. So he's a, the second important piece in this thread. Ibn Taymiyyah is asked by his fellow Muslims, what are we supposed to do when we find ourselves in the situation where we are being ruled by people who aren't really Muslim? And this is the famous Mardin Fatwa. And he says, well, you could just live with it and accept it for what it is. But you really shouldn't. He said, you have to do one of two things. You either have to get out or if you can't get out, you have to resist. You have to fight, whether by subterfuge or openly or whatever. And this was, so this is the second piece. Now I'm going to jump ahead quickly again to the, to the 18th century. And you have yet another situation that's unique to Islam. Now we have the Ottoman Empire. So you do have Muslims, ruling Muslims, but they're very corrupt and worldly. And so what happens? The two holy sites, Mecca and Medina, fall into disrepair. Uh, they're not being well looked after. People are profligate. Um, it's just, it's, it's an awful time. And so you have this group down there led by Ibn Wahhab. And Ibn Wahhab and his followers say, these Muslims, they are Muslims, but they are not proper Muslims. So we are going to take back the two holy sites. And this is our obligation as Muslims, to purify the religion and reclaim it. So these might seem like really obscure threads digging way back into history. But why are they important? Because all of these threads are present in every piece of modern jihadist literature. These are the foundations. So when you jump ahead to, I mean, I'm, I'm going to just skip over um, two of the most important people, Said Qutb and Hassan al-Banna. But I'm going to do that because I'm, I, the, the important starting point for us right now is modern jihad, contemporary jihad, 1979, Abdullah Azam. We're now in Afghanistan. What's happening in Afghanistan, 1979? The Soviets have invaded Afghanistan, and they're trying to impose their, their secular communist government in an essentially Muslim country. Abdullah Azam establishes this, this fundamental argument that says Muslims who are being 
conquered or attacked by non-Muslims have a personal obligation to fight back. So they're now saying it's not enough for the KE. You don't have to wait for the caliph. You don't have to wait for the leader to tell you to fight. You have a personal obligation. And how is he able to make that? How is he able to just change this fundamental rule so quickly? Well, because he's able to cite Ibn Hanbal. He's able to cite Ibn Taymiyyah. He's able to cite Wahhab. And on top of that, he's able to get the approval of a number of scholars from the region to say, well, he's right. We see the arguments in the Quran. We can back it up with arguments from these great scholars through history. So indeed, he's right. It's your personal obligation. This is the foundation of contemporary jihad. And nobody has really yet been able to challenge this argument. And, and it's this argument that, has, that others have then been able to build on. So Osama bin Laden came along, and he made some changes to this, right? But without Azam's foundational argument, nothing that he said would have been acceptable. So the big, the, you know, bin Laden, his, his big contribution was to say, our fight is no longer the Soviets in Afghanistan, right? That ended with their withdrawal. Our fight is now going to be Saudi Arabia, the United States, Israel, and their allies. Now, ISIS took it one step further. This is such a fast whirlwind, but I'm, hopefully this makes sense, okay? ISIS took it one step further. They essentially were able to build on these arguments. And this is, you see, the foundation that was created by Ibn Taymiyyah, by Wahhab, by Azam, are what allow ISIS to then come in and make their argument. Now, what ISIS has added, which is really critical, and this is what makes them such a serious threat, are a couple of pieces. One is they have really, um, capitalized on and, and elaborated on this whole notion that this is the end of time. This is the final jihad. And there's a whole literature, you know, it, um, there's a whole literature that's been built up around it and it's been very persuasive for, for people. And there are ideologues out there who've become very important exactly because they are able to develop this argument. This is the final jihad. If you want to be assured of a place in heaven, this is the time you have to come fight today in Syria and in Iraq. So this was one piece. The second piece that's so critical about ISIS is the fact that they claimed to have established the caliphate. Now, I've heard ridiculous things said about this. I heard on the radio the other day somebody talking about the caliphate being an imagined space as if that's going to make it go away or be any less persuasive to people. There's a, a, a really excellent uh, documentary on Frontline that I commend to you. Um, a very brave Afghan journalist went in and talked with ISIS supporters in Afghanistan, right? So there are people in Afghanistan now that are leaving the Taliban and calling themselves ISIS. And the journalist um, was asking them, why have you left the Taliban and joined ISIS? And they said, two reasons. One is, ISIS has established the caliphate. And the Quran tells us that when the caliphate is established, we have to be a part of it, so we have to support it. And the second reason is, ISIS pays better. <laughs> right? So the fact that they've got these resources in Iraq, in Syria, is important. Um, you know, I don't think people would come to them if it was purely mercenary, but the fact that they have these tremendous resources is important. So ISIS today is a very real threat. I mean, I, I want to say two things at the same time. On the one hand, I, I hate concentrating too much on ISIS because the global jihadist threat is, is huge. It's much bigger than ISIS. There are groups in every country virtually. There are all kinds of splinter groups. There are Shia groups. There are Sunni groups. So I think it's, it's um, misleading to narrow it down too much to ISIS, but ISIS is the big threat today and to us. A very quick snapshot of, the, of the, the threat to us in the United States. 
Um, since ISIS really appeared on the international scene in March 2014, we've had 96 interdictions by law enforcement. So that means uh, seven unnamed minors because of their young age and six who've been killed. 96. This gives us, this is, averages out to about 4.5 interdictions per month. Al-Qaeda never got above about 1.5 per month. So ISIS is recruiting in this country and finding supporters in this country at a rate three times greater than Al-Qaeda. So that in itself is, is significant. ISIS is targeting youth in a way that Al-Qaeda never did. 65% of the interdictions have been people under the age of 25. I mean, that should really scare us. And that should actually also want to make us reach out to the Muslim families that are being impacted by this. Um, there was a really heartbreaking interview in the Denver Post about a week ago. Um, the dad whose 15-year-old daughter tried to fly to Syria. Uh, finally, uh, this was about a year ago, I think, that she got arrested or stopped at the airport. He's finally made a public statement. And it's, it's mind-blowing. I mean, for those of you who are parents, you know, I mean, we're all dealing with the internet and, you know, trying to keep an eye on what our kids are doing. But here's a dad. He's, he sounded lovely. He obviously, you know, was a close family. He, he thought he knew his daughter really well. And the next thing he knows, with no signs, no clues, his daughter doesn't come home from school one day. He becomes alarmed. He, I don't know, he gets hold of something, I remember it was phone or computer or something, and realizes, sees a ticket. And at the last minute, he's, that he's able to get law enforcement to stop her from getting on a plane. But that's how fast it is happening and how much it's happening underneath the noses of parents. Now, I don't want to portray all you know, ISIS supporters in this country as innocent 15-year-old girls, because it's absolutely not the case. There are many cases where parents have been complicit. Um, I think it's quite alarming and, and concerning that only about 18% of those who've been uh, interdicted have actually been turned in by family members or somebody that they know. And the whole argument that we need to work closely with the leaders in the Muslim community because they're going to help us in this fight so far, we're not seeing the evidence of it. Not a single person of those 96 interdicted has been turned in by an imam or a leader in the Muslim community. Now, that's not to say that we can't build those relationships, but honestly, I just don't know how realistic that is, and yet we're building a whole, we're building a whole policy on it. And last piece is today's bombing in Libya. Um, you know, they've taken out, I've heard different numbers, 30, 40, 60 uh, ISIS supporters were killed in this camp that we bombed this morning. And I heard it said um, that they were, they've been being monitored for quite a while and that they were plotting something. So, I mean, the whole notion that there's a group over there of 30 to 60 who's plotting some big attack in the West, I mean, that potentially dwarfs Paris, right? This threat is constant, it's real. They're here in our country. Uh, they have made very clear their intentions that they wanna come after us. They've got a lot of supporters in this country and they've got the ideologues who are supporting what they're doing. Super discouraging. So what do we do? Why do I say the conservative response is the only realistic way to protect ourselves? Well, I think it's partly the progressive response that's gotten us to this place. You know, it's really unfortunate, but we, I think we have tended too much to reduce conservatism, the notion of conservatism when it comes to foreign policy to just a couple of simple ideas, strong military, strong defense of the nation, uh, you know, these types, of, these types of things. You know, there's some debate do we go in and try to build democracy or not? Um, but conservatism is so much more than that. And I like to go back to Edmund Burke. And if you haven't read your Burke lately, I really, it's, it's worth going back to it. Um, Burke wasn't himself a political philosopher, but I think he did the best job of anybody, uh, sort of the clearest job of applying conservative principles to public policy, particularly to matters of national security. So Burke viewed 
what had been created in England, he understood it to be this thing that had been created very gradually over time. It was achievements um, that had been gained through, you know, great effort. And it wasn't, you know, freedom is not something that's just handed to you whole and that's easily arrived at or arrived at through revolution or in a moment, that it was something that had been evolving and that had been worked out for ages. And so what's important about sort of Burke's conservatism is the notion that you don't want to undo these gains by people who come in with these visionary ideas of a new society, right? That's the progressive notion. Conservatives are grounded in what is, right? We look at the reality of what is. Progressives are focused on what can be. And invariably, it's a dream, right? And so then they come in and they bring about revolutionary change as opposed to what a conservative would ask for, which is evolutionary change. And I think it's also important to remember, and I think it's important that we as conservatives reiterate this, we are not against change, right? We know change comes about. It's brought about by all kinds of things. I mean, I think particularly we've been impacted by science and technology. I mean, just look at what's happening in the pro-life movement. We understand so much more now about the development of the fetus, right? And then, and so that has fed into our pro-life argument. And it has helped, um, also it has helped to make the argument with many people that might not by nature be pro-life, right? So we can adapt, we can grow according to the changes of the times. And I'd just like to use that moment to think about how that contrasts then with the jihadists who now are tied to this notion of a Quran that was written 1400 years ago. Well, whether it was written, it was put on paper, let's say that, 1400 years ago, um, and cannot be changed, cannot be adapted in the jihadist view. Okay, let me be clear, in the jihadist view, and that's why you see the argument made, continuing to this day, for slavery, for women to have only half the value of men, for women not to be allowed to own property, for women's testimony in a court of law not to have the same value as a man's in the court of law, right? Because they're locked in this medieval worldview. With, with the conservative approach and even you know, it's broader than that. This affects all of us. But we were given in, in, in the Bible, in the Christian worldview, divine principles, really. But we can adapt these principles. We can use these principles and participate with God in the creation of laws that apply to this time and this day. And we see this constantly. We see the constant evolution of our laws. So... When 9-11 happened, George Bush made the very famous statement that we were going to go on a crusade and find the people who did this wrong. And he got a terrible hand slapping for it. And if you remember, he, I think within, within 10 days, he very quickly retracted that, that statement. And he kind of backed down, and he then took this line that it's not Islam that's the problem. Now, I don't really fault him for that. I think he had some really bad people whispering in his ear, people who are now actually in prison. Um, but I think he was doing, in many respects, he was doing what actually a conservative would do. He was confronted with this very new threat that he really didn't know that much about. Um, he reacted. He learned that the reaction had a bad impact. He changed his response. He developed a policy based on the notion, maybe if we don't call it jihad, maybe if we don't call it Islam, we can prevent further radicalization. We can bring Muslims into our sphere of friendship. Now, I think had he stayed in office longer, he, I think what he would have seen was that wasn't working. It was creating real problems for law enforcement, and I think he would have adapted. So I, I really, um, you know, looking at it so closely, I really don't think Bush was terribly wrong. Um, and, and this is what a, you know, this is what a conservative would do. You use your judgment. 
you use your you you use your prudence you 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 discern in a through a complex situation you don't have to avoid mistakes i mean mistakes are going to be inevitable right you're going to through trial and error and this was a very burkean notion we get to where we are we 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 evolve we make progress in our polity through trial and error so that's okay but what happened when the Obama administration came into power, I would say two critical mistakes were made. One is people came into positions of influence uh, through the National Security Council who firmly believed that the nonviolent Salafists would help protect us against the violent. that nonviolent Salafism, that somehow these people would not go that extra step and become violent and so that we could work with them. And it's, I, you know, I really hope as time goes by that we will dig more deeply into this problem because I think it's a part of what has led us into the problem in Syria. You know, early on when the negotiations were going on there with the people protesting against Assad, People were brought into those negotiations who were clearly Salafists. At that time, we thought we could work with Salafists, and I think it was a big mistake. So that was one problem. The second problem was, as I touched on earlier, there was this pervasive belief that if we could just solve the social problems, if we could just solve, like in the case of the Tsarnaevs, right, if they hadn't grown up in Chechnya, if we had somehow made them feel more included and more loved, in Boston that they wouldn't have carried out this attack. And again, we are learning it's just simply couldn't be farther from the truth. So what do we do now? You know, I, this is, I think, a tremendously complex and difficult problem. I don't think we fa have faced anything like it. Um, I think it's particularly complex for the United States because of the fact that we hold freedom of religion so sacrosanct. We just, I, I think it, it, we are so deeply programmed not to criticize somebody's religion and to feel that we don't have that right. So we're not talking about it. At the same time, there's pressure coming down from above that's preventing us from talking about it. I mean, I probably don't need to talk about care and how insidious their influence is. Um, but we need to have a conversation. You know, I was, I was, <laughs> I was really quite upset the other day. Um, I was speaking to a group out in McLean and we were talking about, you know, this problem and, and, and Trump and, and somebody was saying, well, um, you know, what are you going to, you know, Trump is going to keep them out, right? And we just have to get rid of this problem. Well, we have 2.5 million, you know, estimated Muslims living in this country. I mean, we ran into problems when we tried to put a few thousand Japanese in camps, a few thousand Germans in camps. Is that really where we're going to go with this? You know, is that really who we are as a nation? I don't think so. But at the same time, we have this very real problem that we have a threat inside of our walls, and we have a threat that wants to get inside our walls. What are we going to do about that? And all I can say is, for, for all of you, now I know not all of you are focused on national security, um, but many of you are, and many of you are warriors in your own right, and I so commend you for the work that you're doing individually. And let me just mention, you know, I, I don't want people to feel discouraged. I know that this is a time in our history when there's so much to be discouraged about, but let me close by, by mentioning a great story that I always draw sort of strength and inspiration from, from the time of the Cold War. There was an extraordinary um, effort that, that came about called the Active Measures Working Group. So early 70s, um, very much a time like today, actually. Um, our intelligence community had been really sort of shut down. Um, we made big changes to how we conduct intelligence. And we really stopped paying attention to what the Soviet Union was doing. The Soviet Union had very active propaganda measures against us. Um, and we sort of said, no, we're going to drop that side of things. And three people, three young staffers said, we're not going to drop it. We think it's important. Herb Romerstein, 
Angelo Codevilla, and who am I forgetting? Oh, Ken DeGraff and Reed, okay? Three young staffers said, no, we're gonna keep paying attention. And they just kind of quietly doc kept documenting it. They, doc you know, they documented the forgeries and the propaganda and the lies that the Soviet Union was putting out. And I know at the time they must have felt that their task was utterly hopeless. What can three people do against a country that doesn't seem to care and against the Soviet Union? But what they did was extraordinary because they kept that thread alive. And so that when Reagan came into power, they were able to take what these three men did, and it, you know, it kind of grew and evolved over time, but they grew, built it up into what was called the Active Measures Working Group, which became, is now thought to be, one of the most effective interagency groups that has ever existed. And the work that they did was absolutely incredible. And, and I would say it was foundational to the United States defeating the Soviet Union or to the Soviet Union collapsing. So I just want to say to those of you who feel despondent and discouraged because the threat seems so big, it seems like our government doesn't care, it seems like we're all doing the wrong thing, like the government is doing all the wrong things, um, all I can say is keep up your individual fight because it will change, um, the threat will not go away, and I think right now the, the burden is on us. It is on us as citizens to keep this fight alive, and there will come a moment where it changes, either because the threat lands in our backyard or because we get a new president. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Catherine's going to do a few questions. I have to say, I never understood previously how ISIS fit into the world of ideas. What a great talk. Oh, good. Excellent. If you would um, raise your hand, and uh, I'll let you call on them. Uh, and uh, if you would give your name and affiliation, and wait for the mic to come, because this is being taped for people who couldn't come Can along. Come There's one in front. Thank you. Hi, I'm Sally Linderman. I'm the 8th District Rep for the Virginia Federation of Republican Women. One of the things that I, um, as growing up, we never had to think of this kind of thing happening. Never. It, it, we just studied it in our textbooks. Is this was where, where uh, the Islams lived, and this is where we lived. Now, what we're doing now because of this global threat, I see things, organizations like in, that was in witchcraft, in, in Scientology, all these cults, these cult religions. And what would we done to, to go and counteract a lot of the cults? A lot of parents that had kids that ran off and got into these cults. They had to get deprogrammers to go in and, and snatch them back and get them deprogrammed so that they turned around they could go and help and understand. What are we doing and looking at it from another view of deprogramming these people that, that, that want to hate us? I think it's a tactic that we're not doing that we need to look at as deprogramming device to go in and, and change some of this. What do you well, think? Well, no, it's a, it's a very interesting point. I mean, I think... Um, Two things. The whole counter-radicalization uh, effort is a very complex one. There have been a lot of different initiatives in different countries. Um, I think it's generally felt that they don't, have not worked so well the way that they're operating. There's one that's being carried out in the UK rather quietly that I think has been much more effective, which is almost like a Boy Scout. It's like, how do you get these kids you know, out of the East End of London or wherever they are, um, and and get them get them engaged, get them you know into a community where they might not you know where they would be less inclined to go the radical route. The problem I think with what's happening in this country is we're putting all our eggs in this CVE basket, this countering violent extremism, and it's just fundamentally flawed because for one thing. We're not tackling the threat sufficiently. We're downplaying the seriousness of the threat because that fit, you know, it's politically expedient to do so. So we're not dealing directly enough with the threat itself. We're putting all our hope into this countering violent extremism and the problem there is that I think we are working too much with bad people. So, you know, one of the big problems that the that the I would say that the Muslim community is struggling with within itself is that you have these 
more radical groups that have assumed leadership have just said, we are the voice of the Muslim community. And I think a lot of the people, the Muslims themselves, don't feel represented by these people, but those are the people that we're talking to. So um, I think this, you know, this creates a real, this creates a real problem. But yes, we need much more of this. We need to experiment. We need to try all different things. You know, it's, it's a real crisis. Um, and I, you know, I think especially for Muslim families in this country, working hard, trying to, you know, survive, trying to do well for their kids. Um, we should be really concerned for them. Any other questions? Um, I'll go right here. Go ahead. Oh, right there. Uh, my name is Colette Caprera. I'm with Heritage. Uh, and I'm almost, I don't know if this is too off the wall, but I was thinking of the role of media and the importance of language. Because I can almost remember when ISIS appeared out of nowhere I mean, at first, it was really clumsy reporting. I mean, a lot of words to describe who there was. And then they said, we are ISIS. And I thought, no, don't say that, because you're, you're helping to turn them into this thing that can have magnetism by naming it ISIS. And still, the language of the media just drives me nuts when they say mastermind for a terror attack. I mean, what kind of a brain, when you take kids in schools and hospitals, you just have to be a coward <laughs> and then completely unethical. You don't have to be a mastermind to do it. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. And I think our media should change their language too. And they help kind of create this, you know, thing uh, uh, that has this attraction for people because it's a big power and it then and it, then it does take it on. No, I think you're hitting on a, a, another very key point. Um, there's been a lot of debate about language. You know, the whole, do we call it ISIS? Do we call it ISIL? Um, I think, you know, uh, from a national security perspective, you want to um, look at how the enemy describes themselves. So you have to accept that, right? And, uh, you know, do we call them Daesh? Do we call them ISIS? Um, there are certain things that just come about because it's, it's easy, right? So most people default now to ISIS. Um, but I think this highlights, again, another real shortfall in our strategy. So when the Cold War ended, we really felt like, you know, that it was the end of history, right? We'd won. We were victorious. So we, one of the things we did was we shut down USIA. We, we shut down our, inform, our global information operations, our, you know, the means by which we were promoting the American idea abroad. We said we don't need to do this anymore. We shut it down. Um, and this has left us without the capacity to deal with these kinds of ideas. And um, this has been, this is one of the huge, huge failings. In fact, if I had to s pinpoint any one single failing, it's that we are not fighting this as a war of ideas. And we don't have the place to fight this as a war of ideas. We have the little, in the State Department, uh, the little Center for Counterterrorism Communications. Um, and I have a very high regard for Ambassador Alberto Fernandez, who ran that. You know, if you think about it, ISIS puts out an estimated, what have I heard, 40 to 60,000 tweets a day, right? Um, I think the Center for Counterterrorism Communications at its height had 15 people, right, trying to, you know, push back and tweet out and stuff like that. We just, we haven't invested in it. We don't have a place, we don't, we're not putting the resources into having those kinds of discussion about the language, the terminology. And it's hugely important. I think it's the single, probably the single most important. Um, we are not pushing back on the ideas that they're putting out there. Yes? Um, I'm Lashley Wolfen. I'm Cindy's friend, Cindy Rushing's friend, who's graciously invites me to these meetings. Um, I have occasion to deal with diplomats a good deal, and I do know that and many of these diplomatic women from Muslim countries, and they are scarf-wearing ladies, are mortified and horribly embarrassed about this situation. Why are the Muslims in this country, the Imams, the peace-loving Muslims, not coming forward and speaking? I wish I knew. Um, no, but you're right, and and I think this is the dilemma. I mean, it was interesting because I think one of our I think one of our most important allies, for example, are the Jordanians. And it's so interesting. I mean, they're, they are so threatened by this, right? But I was talking with them just a few weeks ago, and I think one of the problems is they cannot be seen by the Muslim world to be attacking, attacking fellow Sunnis. Right. 
So they're in a very, very difficult position. And I would say the same for the Egyptians, who are natural allies, for whom ISIS is so um, antithetical, right? I mean, this, this, you know, would destroy these countries. In fact, you know, ISIS, I think, wants to go after these countries. Um, and yet they, they're over a barrel. It's, you know, again, as I said, um, that's why I don't think there's any one easy, quick response. You know, every, all of us who are dealing with this threat are just going to have to kind of walk through this one step at a time prudentially and try to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we resolve this? Why more people don't speak up in this country? I ask you. I mean, I can only say I think it's fear. I think it's fear. Um, and it's incredible how aggressive the other side is. I mean, people are getting just, I want to say crucified, but, you know, um, you know, it's incredible how aggressive the other side is. And now, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center is jumping into this as well um, and going after people. So, sorry, Kathy, you, you've been patiently waiting, so let me... Katie, do you have any sense of how active our law enforcement may be in infiltrating mosques in this country? I can't, I'm, I don't, I don't know, but I will say in general, I think our law enforcement is doing actually a really good job. I mean, we work with them very closely. We work with the FBI, with local law enforcement. I think they're frustrated, particularly law enforcement, because um, they are not getting the training that they need. Uh, FBI is getting more, although it's remarkable that with a week or so after San Bernardino, the FBI cut its counterterrorism training budget by half. Um, yeah, so budget cut, budget restraints. So um, that you know, I think it'll come back online. But but that happened um, again because it's not coming from directly above. That this is important. We need to be prepared. We need to be trained. Um, I think what seems to be working, if you look at the individual cases of people who've been interdicted by law enforcement, um, what seems to be working really well is the whole use of informers. That's where a lot of the, you know, the arrests are coming from. So I think what that means is they're finding people in the community um, who are willing to work with them who can then go in and, and build these relationships. Um, I think there's more of that than you know, actual infiltration of mosques. Just because I know the, the constraints are so great. I mean, there was this one story that we were told by an FBI agent who said, this was a few years ago, but he was tracking somebody. This was actually here in Virginia um, in our wonderful, um, yeah, Falls Church Mosque. But uh, he was tracking somebody. And, you know, the problem is the second somebody goes into the mosque, you have to stop following. You have to turn off the equipment. You can't, you cannot follow. And, you know, as Christians, we probably should be grateful for that because it means they don't follow us in our churches. Um, but it does create a problem because there is so much radicalization going on in the mosques. That is without, without a doubt. Yeah. Maybe one more question. Do we have time for one more? Yeah. I don't know what, what our... You had a question? Hi, my name's Brooke. I'm the Middle East policy intern here at Heritage. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> So I was kind of wondering, how is our shifting priorities in the Middle East really affecting our trust and relationship with these Muslims who would be willing to stand up against terrorists or move for more moderate societies? Yeah. <laughs> you kind of hit it on the head. I mean, it's... I. You know, this administration's pursuing a policy of working closely with Iran and the sort of Shia crescent, and so now all the Sunnis feel like they're being betrayed and they don't understand it. So I think, you know, I don't understand why we're working with who we're working with. I think we're working with people who've declared themselves our enemy, um, who show they are our enemy, have a long history of being our enemy, um, and what it means is the people who want to be our allies, who are doing incredible things, um, we are not working with them. And nor, I would say at this point, do they want, they don't trust us. I think if we came in tomorrow and said, look, we realize we've made a mistake. We, we're going to come in with a new policy. We want to, you know, create these, um, the, this new alliance. I think they would come to it in a heartbeat. Like, I, I really, I don't think we've burned our bridges but I think we have created a real situation of mistrust. And again, I would speak particularly of the Egyptians, the Jordanians, maybe the UAE, um, 
some of these countries who really also have an interest in fighting it, um, but are not going to do it by themselves. So was that it? Did we hit all the questions? Was there, you had one more? Okay, last question. Okay. I'm an intern at Claire Boothus Policy Institute. I'm pretty loud, unless you need the microphone. <laughs> but but um, I guess my question would be is, I, you, like you were saying, in this country we're very cautious because of religious freedom and us being Christians. How do we go about talking about it with, I guess, being, I don't know the word, politically correct? Because like, you said the way we need to start talking. How do we go about doing that? What would you say? Just start doing it. There was, I was trying to find, there was a beautiful quote from Justice Scalia that I was trying to find before coming in here, um, where he said, you know, don't, don't be afraid of being the minority voice or whatever. Um, he said it very beautifully. Um, but I, I think you just have to, you, you really just have to start talking. You ha First of all, I think it is important to start learning and reading, because um, it is complex. And I don't accept the argument that we just have to dismiss all of Islam or that this is the true face of Islam. I mean, I can just tell you, I mean, that's not my judgment. I'm just basing it on what I see happening in the world. I've had you know, numerous conversations with Muslims of different types, intellectual reformers, you know, members of the Jordanian military, whatever. They're struggling. They're struggling to figure out their religion. They're struggling to figure out do they remain loyal to Islam at, and at any cost, or is it more important to find a way to live peacefully with the rest of the world? So, you know, we can chime in and be part of that conversation. Just, you know, be thoughtful, be respectful, but don't be afraid to talk about it. What's the best book or two you would recommend for people who want to beef up their knowledge? Okay, great question. April 11th, my husband's book is coming out. <laughs> um, Defeating Jihad, you can order it today. No, um, that's an obvious one. Well, I mean, I have to, I should, um, I didn't even bring a copy. I should tout my own book. Um, this was a great book, actually. This, um, I, I didn't write it, I edited it, but Fighting the Ideological War. It's a really interesting book because we took people who'd been really instrumental in the Cold War, great, great people. John Lynchowski's article on how Reagan sort of fought the Cold War is just one of the most beautiful articles ever. That's in there. Um, Bob Riley um, has written fabulous stuff. I think, uh, you know, if you want to, I know because many of you are conservatives, you've, you're probably well grounded in political philosophy. I think you'd find fascinating Bob Riley's book, Robert Riley, The Closing of the Muslim Mind. He best, better than anybody, really explains this sort of intellectual problem within Islam, and I think that's helpful to understand. So those are probably the ones, and if you, I meant to mention as well, if you are interested in the specifics of what's happening in the United States, on our um, website, Threat Knowledge Group, this report's available for free, ISIS, the Threat to the United States. Thank you Thanks. so much. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. What a... What a great talk. Uh, yeah. Bridget said you were good. I, yeah. I hadn't heard you, but was Bridget right? Yeah. She definitely was. Thank you so much. Here's our limited edition. Yeah. Loose Policy Issue Coffee Mug. With her famous saying, no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> Thank and you. A Claire Booth Luth ladies tote bag. There you Yay. go. Carry all Thank your Thank you so much. And um, from Heritage, we love to give out books. So um, I'm not sure that. You yet have the 2016 Index of Military Strength. Oh. We've got copies of the highlights document for all of the attendees also um, outside. Um, we so appreciate your being here with us. Um, and we would love to invite you all to join us for lunch afterwards just across the lobby in our Van Andel Center where we can con continue the conversation with Katie. So thanks again for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure.